0: Sally the milkmaid had a terrible problem. She milked her cows every morning, but by evening she felt like a bag of loosely connected bones. Her hands were terribly sore, each knuckle popped and snapped back and forth under her skin like the waves on an ocean while she milked. Her bag also ached
1: so terribly and carrying the pails made her shoulders twist and her neck muscles tense so hard it gave her headaches almost every
0: day. Her knees wobbled like she was a drunkard, and she often spilt half as much milk as she got from her cows before she could sell it.
1: One morning she happened to be carrying her pails past Hadley Castle, and she set them down for a moment and stood up to crack her shoulders back and forth until they felt like they were sitting comfortably. It was a misty morning, so early that she was treading the lonely road past the
0: castle on her own. i <sighs> know. voice whispered to her out of the morning fog. Sally looked around, but she didn't see anyone else about on the lonely road. She stopped to pick up her pails again, feeling the bones of her back crack and shift as she did, and paused, feeling unwilling to carry on. I can kill your nails, said a whispered voice again. Sally stood up, looking all around her, but no one was there. If you say you have a cure, show yourself, and tell me how I might be relieved of these terrible aches.
1: Out of the mist, a ghostly woman appeared. She was all in white, and her skin was pale as death. Hollow eyes settled on Sally, and a thin, dry mouth crooked into a half-smile. The woman raised a skeletal arm and pointed at the castle.
0: woman said through dry, flaky lips. Sally was shaken. This woman couldn't be real. She appeared out of the mist, and while Sally could very well see her torso, she seemed to be floating before her. No, 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 Sally cried, realising then that the woman who had appeared before her was none other than the terrible white woman who haunted Hadley Castle. Sally forgot her pails and ran as fast as she could. When she reached
1: her home, and whatever terror that had seized her had gone she felt all the aches and pains running come over her throughout the day her joints swelled and ached like a woman in her eighties and she felt so tired that she almost forgot the white woman's words to meet her at the castle at midnight
0: when she did she scoffed of course she wouldn't go That woman was a spectre and surely the work of some devil. Sally was still hurting, though, and she thought about it for a while. If this woman could cure her, then she'd probably have a price, and since she was a ghost, it was probably not one Sally would be willing to pay. On the other hand, Sally wanted to be able to live a good
1: life without all these aches and pains. She thought on the offer for a long while, and when the hour came to meet the lady, Sally decided,
0: A minute ticked by and Sally only thought of her bed, how nice it would be to lay down and rest. She brushed her hair and put her nightclothes on and thought no more of the ghostly lady. But when she set her brush down and looked in the tiny mirror to inspect herself, she saw behind her a white glowing hand reaching towards her shoulder. ghostly hands wrapped around her head and twisted it so hard that she heard a pop. Sally screamed and the lady in white smiled down on her cruelly before evaporating into the darkness. Sally realised after a few moments of pure terror, where she was sure the lady would come back, that the room seemed to have slanted. Her table with a little mirror was off-kilter but neither the mirror nor the brush moved despite the odd angle. Sally peered at her reflection in the darkened room
1: and screamed once more. Her (laughs) neck was at a terrible angle. Sally tried again and again to push her head back to where it should be, but it was stuck fast. What a foul thing the woman in white
0: had done to her. From that day on, Wherever Sally went, people pointed and stared. They called her Rye Neck and jeered when she walked past, carrying her pails of milk. May is EDS month, and it's something
1: both of us are directly affected by. So we took the story of Rye Neck Sal and twisted it slightly to give you an idea of what it's like to live with EDS. Though this is written from my perspective somebody who mostly has hypermobility issues, EDS compromises a range of different s- symptoms and is
0: often misunderstood by GPs. Probably the cruelest part of this condition is that from the outside, you look perfectly fine. There's no visible signs of EDS. You look like someone very well. And we become very, very good at acting well. It is an act. The pain is there 24-7. The fatigue is there 24-7. And both Elsa and I would dearly love to make more episodes a month, but we barely have enough energy to do this. So rest assured, we will continue to put all our remaining energy into making these (laughs) episodes. But if you'd like to understand more about this condition, and perhaps if you feel that you could be affected by it as well, then I've put some links to the EDS Society and Chronic Pain Charities in the blurb for this episode. Welcome to Erie, Essex. I'm Bethan Briggs-Miller. And I'm Ailsa Clark. Thank you for joining us on our journey into the stranger side of the county. We will be
1: exploring the folklore, urban legends and supernatural encounters that form part of its rich history.
0: Everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of Eerie Essex. This week we are looking at exorcisms. And I think Elsa can back me up on this. We ended up down some very weird and very long and very dark rabbit holes. And I really hope that we've got enough time to tell you all the things we've found. Elsa, yeah? This might be a twofer episode. <laughs> I think this might have to be split into two parts. We might have to do a hobbit on it. <laughs> <laughs> A do a hobbit
1: sounds so
0: dirty. A do a hobbit. <laughs> Whatever gets you through, Elsa. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, Elsa and I have not had any sleep. For some reason, we both had insomnia, pain I don't know what it was, but we couldn't sleep. And we've just, well, I've just found out that today is St. Mark's Eve. And it's traditionally the day where anybody who's due to die this year joins a funeral procession in the streets, a ghostly phantom procession. So there you go. That's a good start to the day.
1: But you also told me it was, it uh, affected people
0: differently. And some of the people who were going to die this year would not get any sleep. Oh, no, no, no. It's not the ones that are going to die this year. It just seems to af- affect the air. Oh, okay. Like the thinning of the veil. It's, it's sort of like a Halloween, non-Halloween. Whoever it was,
1: we're both on the edge of hysteria. So yes. this is going to be a good episode.
0: And it's Ailsa's turn first, so I'm going to relax now and just take it away. If you drift off, I'm going to yell at you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) When it comes to exorcisms, we all have the famous image in our heads of little Reagan sitting up in her bed, head spinning round, pea green vomit shooting out of her mouth in all directions like a mouldy fountain. But exorcisms take many different forms and are practiced by many different cultures. In Essex alone, we have accounts of Anglican and Catholic exorcisms, exorcisms by Saint relics, and expelling demons by cunning folk. And some post-Reformation Jesuit priests claim to have exorcised nearly 500 people in Essex alone between 1506 and 1508. Wow. Yeah, that was uh, I read that and then had a little lie down afterwards because <laughs> I, I couldn't wrap my head around it, let alone how to start where who these people were and how to get that information.
0: I know. Interesting as well about Exorcism by Relic, because when we started this podcast, I bought myself and Elsa St. Benedict's medal that had been dipped in the ashes of St. Benedict and had the exorcism right put over it. Because if we're going to any spooky places (laughs) with poltergeists, potentially demons, we don't want to bring any of that back with us. So,
1: (laughs) Unfortunately, I forgot to wear mine the last time we went out into somewhere a little bit spooky.
0: Yeah, naughty.
1: Uh, Find out more on an upcoming episode. So this first exorcism is one that has been driving me mad for several months. It's driving me completely bonkers because I can actually prove it took place. I just can't access the official details. The exorcism was conducted by the Catholic Church and took place in a house on East Hill in Colchester. The house was called the Hostel of the Good Shepherd and was founded in 1859 by Mrs. James Round. The hostel ran for many years as a home for destitute women and girls before becoming part of the Diocese of Chelmsford and was turned into a mother and baby home, becoming known as the Hostel of the Good Shepherd. In 1972, sometime in June, it seems that something was upsetting the residents of the home. Women were hearing footsteps and shuffling coming from the empty rooms in the hostel, and the Catholic Church felt compelled to perform an exorcism on the house. The exorcism was carried out by Reverend Eric Turner, from the nearby St. James's Church. Now, when I tried to look up more about Eric Turner, I couldn't find a lot. I couldn't find a biography or anything else. The knowledge that he performed the exorcism came from a book that Bethan very kindly shared with me. (laughs) But the only thing I could find of of him was on Facebook, a video of his funeral, which was uh, interesting. Oh, Now, if you're internally screaming, that's all. They heard some voices and noises and uh, the Catholic Church performed an exorcism just for that. (sighs) What I'm trying to say to you is, is I know, right? It's been driving me mad.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we tried to look this up in the Essex Record Office and they're sealed until 2040? 2077. It's in their meeting notes.
1: It says clearly that an exorcism took place. And it's, it uses the word exorcism, not blessing. Now, before anyone starts reading into this, I will remind you that it was a mother and baby home. And these institutions were run in times where women were pressured to give up their children for what we see today as really backwards reasons. But I'm guessing that it will be sensitive material in this document that living persons would still find painful to be exposed. So it might not be to cover up why the reasons they form, they performed an exorcism, even if The reasons right now sound really pathetic. We did ask Reverend Peter Laws what he knew about the exorcism of places. And he was really kind and he answered several of our questions. But he didn't know many examples of clergy exercising places. He did mention that normally the phrasing, this would be a blessing. He also mentioned that he performed a blessing on an MOT garage for it to be safe and successful. And it went on to be one of the most quickly successful ones in the area. And he got free MOTs after that. So well done, Reverend deal. Peter Laws. Well done. <laughs> so. It does say in the in the diocese of Chelmsford's own documents that it was a rite of exorcism that took place at hostel. So this makes the whole
0: mystery even worse. Can I, ju- I, I I can't go into the story because Danny Robbins might take it up. I've had a message from him. I lived in a house and a Catholic priest came for a blessing, and it ended in an ex. So. Yeah. That, I mean, the, the, again, that's why the story drank because I, I know a bit
1: of your story mm. and I knew how that place. So why on earth did it happen there? Mm. So I tried everything I could think of to find out more about it. Hours on Google, books, newspaper archives, Reddit. Then I did something a little wild. I put a shout out on a Facebook group. So thank you, members of Old Colchester and District Pictures Facebook group. You delightfully opened up a whole other can of worms for me. <laughs> so, I had a, a reply from an ex tour bus host. Uh, we used to have these open top tour buses go around Colchester. Really? Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. Oh, that um, sounds awesome. Yeah, they were really cool. And one of the ladies who was a host on there, I'm going to just give her first name, Barbara. She told me that the residents weren't just hearing strange noises from empty rooms. They were also seeing things. It was a grey lady who would materialise in different rooms and exit by walking straight through the walls. This really did terrify the women. And it seems a bit strange. Still,
0: it provoked an exorcism. Yeah, because it doesn't sound, it it sounds spooky and it sounds scary, but it's normally something Violent that demands an exorcism. That sounds a bit more like, I don't know if I just subscribe to Stone Tape Theory, but that sort of replay of history.
1: Yeah, it gets worse though. All right. <laughs> There are two points here that are still driving me to distraction. First, traditional Catholic exorcism doesn't deal with ghosts. It only deals with the demonic. For an exorcism to take place, several hoops... For an exorcism on a person to take place, several hoops need to be jumped through first. Collection of evidence, permission from the Vatican are a couple of them. And I'm not sure if this pertains to exorcism on places as well, but I would assume that some sort of evidence of the demonic would need to be there.
0: Yeah, because I think it's... It's tied up with how it could affect people and their well-being and mentally. I mean, if an exorcism could, yeah, it could cure, but it could make things worse.
1: Well, and you're thinking about doing this on a building that's filled with women in probably a very heightened emotional state as well. The second thing that is a little troubling is that the Hostel of the Good Shepherd is not the only house on East Hill with a Grey Lady ghost. No, In fact, it's one of at least three Greyfriars Hotel East Hill Lodge And you can probably put Holly Tree's Museum On this list as well Though she's usually Described as a white lady I don't know where The line is Between where you go From white to grey yeah. yeah It's a bit too Of a foggy literally. <laughs> Foggy Literally foggy So one commenter Another commenter From this Facebook group Kathleen Remembered very clearly A day at Greyfriars When the house Had been a school A scream had rung out Through the entire building And it was a scream Emanating from One of her teachers Who just seen the apparition of a grey lady appear in front of her oh so did the catholic church really believe this grey lady was a demonic presence the question is just hanging there waiting to be answered i don't think we're going to get an answer until 2077 how old will we be then too damn old to do this podcast
0: (laughs) we're gonna have to like leave this as a legacy like (laughs) we leave this to you future
1: generations please find out what was in that document for us
0: (laughs) yeah and let us know you know, via a medium or something. (laughs) Now, I'm going to put my sceptic hat on for a
1: second because I feel like I have to. East Hill is a busy road and... These are really old houses. The the noise from the road could be causing noise within the house, the house could be moving and creaking. Any we don't know unless we're there um, and you know see these things for ourselves, but that is one possible explanation for the sounds. The other the the fact that people are seeing things, I'm going to get this word wrong. pareidolia?
0: Paranoia. Parad- I know what you mean. Yeah. Seeing faces where there's none.
1: So gray ladies monks the traditional shape of a ghost etc these are really easy shapes for the brain to interpret as something that it isn't. And the fact that we have so many examples of the Grey Lady just on East Hill alone, it does make me think that maybe it's something to do with the light or how the traffic runs down that hill in particularly. And then again, for the reason for the exorcism, you've got a lot of very mostly young women in there feeling very emotional. Possibly they did it to calm a tense
0: situation. And probably sleep-deprived. So yes. got that sort of hip. I'm going to get this right. Hypnagogic state, like where you about to drift drift off. Mm. So, so those yeah.
1: are those are my reasonable explanations for what happened here. But I would love to know the actual detail. One day it'll
0: happen. Oh, I hope so. Yeah, that's been driving you mad for a while, hasn't it?
1: It has. It has been driving me mad since before last Christmas, and I've kept messaging you, going ah found something else but it's so small it doesn't make any sense
0: <laughs> yeah one day we'll find out maybe
1: but I thought I needed to, to mention it in the podcast because it it raised so many
0: unusual questions and you never know someone listening might know no more <laughs> if you could if you feel comfortable telling us we'll get in touch we'd love to hear from you yeah Bethan on to your first story I was in two minds whether to put this story in exorcisms or cryptids as it straddles both <laughs> Nearly had a little bit of a fight with you on that one, but it's okay now. (laughs) Well, well, we came to a reasonable
1: conclusion. Yes, we did. It was all done reasonably. (laughs) And I agree with you.
0: Yeah, the fact it ends in how it ends, I think it deserves to be in this episode. So this is the story of the South End werewolf, Bill Ramsey. And Elsa, I hope you have been good and not watched the video I sent you and said, don't look at this. I did not watch it. Okay. You said send it to me at like... Two o'clock last night. <laughs> yeah. And I was
1: See, I was still hoping for sleep at that point.
0: I'll talk about it later. It's just genius 90s ghost program, you know, when it was I'll all wait. smoke <laughs> and, and drama. Like it, it, I thought I was watching an episode of The Crystal Maze. See what you think after. So Bill Ramsey. Bill was born in South End, born and bred. And the first incident that happened was when he was just nine years old. He was out playing one sunny Saturday afternoon in the back garden, you know, sort of not a care in the world like you do when you're nine years old. And suddenly he felt quite strange. It came out of nowhere. There was an icy blast of frigid cold and it swept over him and his perspiration actually froze on his skin. And he smelt this foul stench that was so overpowering it made him want to vomit. And when this happened, his mind was filled with two thoughts. One was running away to a life on the ocean wave fair play and the other was wolves Mm -hmm. and he didn't snap out of this trance until his mother called him but when he did snap out of the trance he was like your typical horror movie possessed so something else took complete control of him he had intense and pure rage and it just sat within him it sort of like overtook his personality and he had such an adrenaline rush that he had that you know, when you hear stories of grandmas who lift the tractor off, oh, something, yeah. that's sort of like superhuman strength. So don't forget now, he's nine years old and he picked up a concrete post, a fence post, pulled it up. It took half the fence with him and he was swinging it like a club and his parents couldn't get it off him. Bloody hell. They were so scared. They actually fled into the house and locked the door, leaving him outside they were watching him through the window and he picked up some wire meshing into his mouth and began chewing it. No. Yeah. He started growling. It was like a deep growl that came from deep within him. And they stayed in the house until he sort of calmed down. But can you imagine like being, being afraid of your nine-year-old son? It's no. weird. And this whole story, I really, really, you'd be proud of me. I really had my skeptic hat on. Not trying I mean, me and Elsa never set out to debunk i don't think there's any fun in debunking people's experiences it no happens. it's just to
1: it's just to give another side of the story to make yeah. things what's We're the word balanced balanced you know.
0: yes but this case every time i tried to think of something it didn't didn't pan out i went down a couple of avenues with this i just kept coming up cold so there was a pause in any incident for about 15 years and nothing remotely weird happened to him. Nothing paranormal, nothing weird, no psychotic breaks, nothing. His mental health was fine from what I can understand. He grew up, he got married, he became a father of three. And according to family and friends, he was a wonderful father who doted on his children. He worked as a carpenter and led an entirely conventional life until... Now, the first two years of his marriage, he actually was plagued by nightmares. So he didn't have that transformation, but things were happening in the background, maybe at night. Each dream was the same and the results ended up identical as well. So he would awake in a cold sweat and was overwhelmed by feelings of dread and unease. And In the dream, he actually was chasing his wife, who would eventually turn around and scream in extreme terror. There was one occasion where he woke and he thought he heard the sound of an animal in the room. He heard growling and panting. And when he actually calmed down enough, he realized it was coming from him. Weird. And that sense of dread I mean, he's at what I could gather from his life, don't quite know. He might have been quite stressed. But, you know, as somebody who suffers from anxiety, that sense of dread that you can't name, I'm very familiar with it. Like, especially when you get the what do my friend call it? The night nadgers. Everything in the middle of the night, you just seem to worry about it so much more. Mm there's that feeling of dread. It's it's really overwhelming. So I, I wonder if he did have something in the background, Some raised his head when he was nine years old, maybe. It doesn't take a lot in the middle of the night. If you're up at 2 or 3 a.m., you start worrying about things you did when you were 10. You know, it, it really, it doesn't really follow any logic. So I'm wondering if that sense of dread and lack of sleep and the adrenaline from the dream just sort of mixed together to create this, like, quite, it does sound terrifying, bless him. It sounds, I wouldn't want to go through this.
1: Do you remember the story I told about, because I used to have really bad
0: anxiety and really bad insomnia, and I saw that eldritch horror. It did sound like an eldritch horror. And even then, even at this stage, I don't think this necessarily debunks it. You might even get into a state where you're able to see something which you normally couldn't. So even though we're coming at it from this angle, we're still not debunking it. It just might be another explanation. And then there was another lull in activity. In 1983, he was out with some friends at a local pub. And after several drinks, he started to feel the same as he did that day when he was nine years old, that same icy chill. He told his friends that he needed the loo, so he went to the loo. And when he was in there, he looked into a mirror and he saw a werewolf looking back at him. Now, when I was researching this story, after I you know read the tale and read all the newspaper reports, I rang an old family friend who was head psychiatrist at a hospital in Wales. He's retired now. So he he said himself, I'm not up to date with the latest things, but he gave me his official, you know, expert opinion. And I went through the symptoms. I went through everything he went through with him. We talked about, especially with him looking at the mirror and looking back, back at himself, not seeing the correct thing. This is typical of body dysmorphia. So I've got this off an actual medical review here. So I'm just going to read it as it was in the review. One important factor may be differences or changes in parts of the brain known to be involved in representing body shape. A neuroimaging study of two people diagnosed with clinical lycanthropy. Now clinical lycanthropy is the official term for what Bill is going through from a psychological point of view. So he didn't actually ever change into a werewolf. The newspapers really made it sound like it was... Oh, what was that film with Michael J. Fox? Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf. I was mm-hmm. thinking werewolf in London. But yeah, well, pick, pick your favourite werewolf film. And so, yeah, he never actually changed. He had the belief that he had changed. This is what is called clinical lycanthropy. It also doesn't have to be wolves as well. I mean, zoanthropy is... Zoan-trophy, sorry. Really hard to say all these words. We've picked a difficult subject, is um sort of it could be any animal. I mean, and it also depends on culture as well. A lot of scientists and psychologists think that whatever the person believes they're turning into, it's normally an animal that is represented in their culture as something dark or evil. They're they re- they're seeing similarities in themselves with these, and it could be unfounded, but that's how the brain has worked. It's showing what they assume is evil or bad. So as I say, um, People who were diagnosed with clinical lycanthropy showed areas of the brain that actually showed how we represent ourselves in body shape and perception of our body displayed unusual activity, suggesting that when people report their bodies are changing shape, they may be genuinely perceiving those feelings. So what they're seeing is actually what their brain is telling them to see. This incident at the pub sort of started more, incidents became more frequent after that so in the car ride home from the pub without warning he began to growl and turned on one of the fellow passengers and he his hands were twisted into claws he tried to bite the leg of his friend they pulled the car over and they all made attempts to get him out of the car and it took several minutes and by the time they actually managed to get him out of the car he had calmed down but it again it's that super strength it took all his friends to like drag him out of the car and does it sound like somebody suffering with an adrenaline rush? Yeah, definitely. There's, a, there's adrenaline going on here somewhere. And then 18 months later, in 1983, he began to suffer chest pains and he thought he was having a heart attack. So he checked himself into the A&E at the local hospital and he was in the middle of a blood pressure examination and he sank his teeth into the arm of the nurse and ran through the ward and he was described as possessed. Bloody hell. He had hunched shoulders, both hands were curled into talons and claws, and he was growling and baring his lips, like when you see pictures of rabid dogs. Anybody that dared to approach him was knocked down easily. It was, he had, it was again, a superhuman strength. It took a, a lot of people to subdue him, and eventually a police officer managed to get handcuffs around his wrists. but he needed a tranquilizer in the end to knock him out because he was still fighting even with the handcuffs on. following morning, the tranquilizer had worn off, and he seemed to be back to his normal self and he had a, had a nice breakfast. The doctor listened to the whole story and he wanted Bill to go into observation. However, because he had checked himself in, technically he was voluntary. So he checked himself out because he really got worried about the stigma of being committed to a psychiatric observations. What year was this, by the way? That was 1983. That was around Christmas time. In 1984, he had a, an attack come on again, and he went to the same hospital and the same term voluntarily again. And the attending nurse who was alone with him and in A and E. She actually ended up fearing for her life. Once she told him she was going to find a doctor, he tri- he went through this transformation again. He threw her to one side and lunged for one of the orderlies who were in the room. Luckily, at the same time, four police officers had come into the hospital with another case, and they heard the commotion and went over and tried to calm Ram, um, Bill down. And they had a standoff a, a while, and he began snarling, and he went on all, all fours. He, he managed to defend himself and throw all four of the police officers to one side and one of them was actually so badly wounded that he ended up in hospital for four days but they managed to handcuff him again they took him out to the squad car outside and on the walk outside he actually seemed to come to and it he seemed to switch quite quickly from beast to man i know so i don't know what other way to put it but it was kind of like this sort of Jekyll and Hyde almost when he went to the police station the the police doc the doctor who was there he wanted bill to check himself into a institution but again he decided not to because he was really worried about the stigma of doing that and because he completely went back to normal they released him and there was a lull again for a few years but in the summer of 1987 he was back at the police station but he actually wasn't there for himself he had made a citizen's arrest he took a local teenage prostitute to the station and the second he parked the car she went into the station and he began to feel that sensation coming on again. Oh, no. It started in his chest. There was quite, when I've, I've looked at a couple of interviews, I'll put the links to them on on the information for this episode because at the time there was quite a few, you know, television quite obviously became interested in this case and there's quite a few interviews with him. And the police who actually came out, You know he's well built. It, it would need quite a lot of strength, I think, to just fight him off as easily as Bill did. When he started to question him, he gently touched his arm. And the minute he touched his arm, he described the wolf in him took over. He threw the officer to the ground and was choking him until more officers came and pulled him off. And he was so wild, it took 12 policemen to hold him down and two injections to restrain him. So at this point, <laughs> he didn't have any choice in being put into I a institute. Institute. Yes. So for the next 10 days, he had MRIs x-rays, EEGs, psychiatric tests, he had everything going and nobody could find out what was going wrong. Nothing on the test showed anything, but clearly something was. He really you uh, know like this idea of the berserker. Yeah. That's sort of like, you know, from mild manner to almost like wild warrior. I have a question. I don't yeah. know if you're going to be able to answer it.
1: But did Bill remember what he'd done after these attacks, or was is his knowledge about what happened came came from what people told him he did? From what people told him he did. So there was a dissociative state. I was thinking it might. Like, it sounds a little. This is a, again very misunderstood diagnosis by lots of people. But it just reminded me of things I'd heard about did i mean obviously not most people like many people who
0: suffered from that don't get violent but it just reminded me of something well i'll, I'll talk about that in a minute cuz i as i said i spoke to this psych, um psychiatrist and he came up with some interesting ideas but this went on for a while and every time every time he felt an attack coming on he used to go to the police station and they'd lock him up almost like in know in um, very werewolf. responsible of him very responsible of him i mean he he, when you listen to him in interviews, he's very well. He describes it well, and he's he's not. He doesn't strike me as a superstitious person. He said he didn't believe in any of that, but something was going on, and it was very frightening. Now, around this time, so talk about 88, His story reached the ears of Ed and Lorraine Warren as Bill's story appeared on a television show when they were staying in London, and Lorraine immediately said, "He's got. He's possessed by a demon. This is typical." Like demonic possession. And they got in touch with the police station where he used to stay. After speaking for a while, they actually got to speak to Bill about it and they persuaded him to come to their church in Connecticut to undergo an exorcism with Bishop Robert McKenna. And um, it was quite funny in the interview he gave, he said, I don't believe in any of it, but it wasn't going to turn down a free trip to America. <laughs> oh good old bill he's got good his head bill. screwed on right I no i really like bill and in 1989 he um went across to connecticut uh, it was his trip was sponsored by the newspaper the people the night before the exorcism he tried to strangle his wife so it was almost like i mean if you if you think of this in terms of demonic possession it was like whatever was inside him knew something was going to happen. And it really violently showed itself. The end was nigh. The end was nigh. (laughs) He says, when the exorcism began, I wasn't all that impressed. It was a very long service. It was about half an hour of Latin and nothing happened. But then like almost suddenly there was this moment where he made his, his transformation. Again, I'm doing, what do you call it? (laughs) Quotation marks. No sleep people. We've had no sleep. You've had no sleep. Yeah. He apparently, I've seen the video and I, I think there might be some exaggeration, but his face contorted and he formed his hands into claws and he started growling and McKenna commanded the demon to name itself and then leave. And then he actually attacked the bishop at one point, but then all of a sudden it it stopped. And in interviews, Bill said he felt like something had left him. From that moment, he really started to believe in good and evil and demons are real. And this sort of thing and there's not been an attack since he last made his public appearance in 1992 which is the video I've sent you I'd like you to watch it before I go on just because it's so good I'm going to pause now and if anybody wants to see it so we know what we're talking about pause our podcast go and have a look at it and then come back and we'll discuss it so you just watch the video now and it's just something else isn't it <laughs> I absolutely
1: loved it. I was saying to you all the way through, God, the cinematography is just beautiful. Like it, the editing, wow. Perfect. I'm not being even being sarcastic. I know I sound
0: sarcastic, but it was brilliant. I thought it was fab. And when they took him to Culture to Zoo, we were like, oh, oh we've been there. It's that typical- I used to work there. <laughs> Yay! It's, um, Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, he doesn't tell the whole story. I imagine they cut off quite a bit. Because they do that on TV. They didn't mention when he was nine or strangling his wife, trying to strangle his wife the night before the exorcism. But he just strikes me as this really down to earth guy. No. It went- yeah, but he, I, he strikes me as a really down to earth guy.
1: Yeah, he looked he looked quite like a nice normal well. There was one of the people in this episode says something like, People who look like a werewolf aren't actually going to be wells are they? Rude. And <laughs> yeah, it was rude, but he did have that kind of like he looked like you could imagine him curling up his lips and clawing his hands. Like he he had an expressive face. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I saw that and I had to share that with you. As you say, <laughs> the cinematography was just
1: Oh, so it's gorgeous. the The program's called True or False. I have absolutely no idea when it was nineties nineties, but it's it's just beautiful. I'm gonna I go and of- find more episodes of that.
0: <laughs> but I mean, since that exorcism, yeah, I've looked. There's no no further. I think that was his last public appearance. There's been nothing since. Absolutely. So, I, as I said, I talked through with um, this doctor. And he, we went through all the different possible things that sort of cropped up in his mind. So first, I asked, could it have been psychosis? And he said, "There's two kinds: there's drug-induced psychosis, which can be brought on by alcohol or drugs. Which, he doesn't sound like he was drunk at the pub. He'd had a few drinks, and that was one incident. I mean, that doesn't explain when he was nine, just playing in the garden. There's organic psychosis, which is just a, a, a brain event. But there's two longer gap in incidents, and psychosis doesn't just come and go like that. It's always sort of there in the background, did wonder about epileptic seizures because that, especially when he talked about feeling it coming on and the sort of phantom smell and the change in temperature. But the, I mean, he had EEGs, he had loads of electroencephalograms and he would have thought if it was that they'd have been more frequent and something would have showed up on the tests. I mean, he was, he was quite honest, this doctor. He said it doesn't actually, from what he knows, that... It doesn't actually fit very comfortably in anything he would have thought it could have been. So the dissociative state and the aura, which is the phantom smells, chills, sensations, coupled with the unnatural strength, suggest if it is anything to do with anything to do with the brain, it would be the a complex temporal lobe event is how he described it. So something is happening in the part of the brain which is in charge of how we perceive ourselves. Even though it's not this, he talked about. And cases of schizophrenia where people believe they possess extraordinary powers superhuman strength or superior insights he he admits to what is happening to him and he believes people that tell him what happened but in his interviews and things i've read he doesn't believe he's a werewolf he's not got that belief in the supernatural he thinks there's something very scary happening to him but he doesn't assign it to the supernatural so it doesn't really fit there either I look more into clinical lycanthropy. It's defined as a very rare psychiatric syndrome. It's not actually a condition of itself. It's more of a, a collection of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And then I started looking into other cases of clinical lycanthropy. And some parts of it tally with Bill's experience, but others don't. Just find some now. Bear with me a second. Oh, um, just before I go on to that, you know, I talked about how different animals are more prevalent in different cultures. Somebody conducted a review of medical literature in 2004, and it had over 30 published cases of lycanthropy. And only the minority were actually wolves. Canines aren't uncommon, but they're not the only ones that um, people believe they're being turned into. So people have experiences of transforming into a hyena, a cat, a horse, a bird, or a tiger. Transformation to frogs and bees has been reported in some instances. In Japan, transformation to foxes and dogs is usual. And I just love
1: that there's somebody out there who's just like
0: going, rabbit, <laughs> rabbit. Oh, that's quite a, that's, this is going to sound awful. That's quite a cute transformation, I imagine, the B one. But <laughs> I, I imagine that to anyone who's experiencing it or who's witnessed something happened like that, it's probably really frightening. Yeah, it is. But I'm it's... not Sorry, I'm not decrying it. It just, do you know what? Paranormal, supernatural aside, the human brain is an amazing thing. Exactly. So in 1989, there's a case study described somebody who had a serial transformation that happened again and again and again. And they felt like they'd changed from a human into a dog to a horse, then a cat. And then they finally turned back to a human after treatment. That
1: sounds like the, um, there was an old lady who swallowed a fly.
0: (laughs) It does, doesn't it? All that scene in Willow where he's trying to turn, is it Shere Lindria? The, the the sort of like the white witch back into because she's been transformed into a sort of a possum, isn't she? And he's trying to turn her back into a human and he keeps getting it wrong and he goes through all these animals before he finally gets to a human. But I asked my mum about this because she was a nurse in a really, as I said before in a previous episode, a really old asylum it was still called. And she nursed a patient who believed they And lived as a cat, so there wasn't. They didn't go in and out of human and cat. They literally were a cat, and they would meow. They could. They wouldn't speak. They would. When it's time to go to bed, they'd circle round and round to make a nest. I think she said eventually there there was because she was really there at like the change from pretty much like Victorian ways of dealing with things to like modern medicine. I think they did bring out something to help that person, but they had been like that for a long time. There's also thought that it could be a rare variant of delusional misidentification syndrome, so it's called DMS for short. It affects people's psychotic and how other people perceive them. And I think it's to do with um, how they perceive themselves, but also their belief system, which ties in again with it being different in different cultures and it's largely influenced by the socio-cultural environment of the patient. There is another case I looked at, this is pretty grim, a 25-year-old milkman was suffering from obsessive-compulsive disorder. He had um, undertaken bestiality with one of his own buffaloes. Oh my god. Yeah. And his family brought him to a department, this is in America, I I couldn't find out where, but um, it was brought to the department of psychiatry by his family because he had complaints of excessive hand washing, irritable behavior, decreased sleep with recurrent cleaning of the genital areas and acting like a buffalo. And during an interview with the patient, he reported engaging in sexual activity with his own buffalo a few times. And he believed that the cells from the buffalo had entered his body and was turning him into a buffalo. Let's have a look here. Sorry, I was so much. Again, this was the rabbit hole I went down. I had no idea how, well, not common because it isn't common, but widely reported. Why? Wide, yeah. So it says he used to see when he looked in the mirror, he would see a buffalo, and he and over time, like more body parts started turning into the buffalo. But his family members used to tell him, "You're not. I can see you're human." But in the end, he ended up like on all fours, asking for hay and eating grass. Ask like
1: asking for hay, as in like, I'd like some hay now, please. Yeah, <laughs> I, like, I guess so. I'm a
0: buffalo. I I'm a am buffalo, going to, to eat want some, some hay. hay. Yeah. There's also a, a case in 1852 where a man was admitted to an asylum in Nancy, in France. He was convinced he turned into a wolf, and he would he thought he had cloven feet, and he complained he have to... cloven feet. I know this is yeah. it's sort of more like a um minotaur sort of look yeah and he would only eat raw meat and he refused it if it wasn't rotten enough he would his hands would be in claws and he would be baring his teeth you know a lot like how bill used to be in his transformations and a lot of it one one person thought they were turning into a pig it was only when they looked in the mirror they saw it not when they looked at themselves and over the past decade there has been various brain imaging studies to try and find out the specific areas and again it's that frontal lobe that is in charge of how we perceive ourselves. Again, I'm going to be here forever, but I'll just finish on another one. And this is the one that kept me up last night because content warning, this is pretty grim. You might want to skip, skip ahead a couple of minutes. There was a historic case that someone investigated in Austria, and this was Musham Castle, and it was sort of the centre of the Salzburg witch trials. So this involves witchcraft trials and werewolf hunts. And there was a werewolf scare during 1715 to 1717, when an unusual number of cattle and deer had been killed in the area. And when attempts to try and hunt down the predator failed, they started to pick out people in the town. And people were taken to the castle. They were tortured. And eventually, um, there was two adolescent beggars who were tortured in a chamber in the castle. And after a while, they confessed that they had used an, an ointment to turn themselves into wolves. And they escaped execution by being sentenced to lifelong serve. Servants as Venetian galley slaves, but there was loads of people who were taken up there and sort of tortured. And I think they were just again, any, you know, people would probably admit to anything after they've been tortured long enough. The, the witch trials were pretty grim there as well. There was if the, the, the youngest person was ten, the oldest person was eighty, and they had a particular thing of where they so this is going completely off the topic of exorcisms, but they used to cut off the hands of the children who were accused, and then they wouldn't kill them; they would parade them through the town. Oh, my God, that is awful. Yeah, this is what I was reading before. No wonder I had insomnia. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't. I I had insomnia
1: then because I didn't read anything like that before I went to bed.
0: I oh, know there was somebody in um, Cologne, Peter Stump, who I think, I, I can't remember rightly, but I, I went to a lecture with um, Peter Laws the other day and he was talking about demonic possessions. And I think he was actually talking about Peter Stump, but he raped, murdered, and devoured men, women, and children. And he was, it was the most famous werewolf trial in the world, probably. And this was in 1590. And he said he had a magic girdle he used to wear to turn him into the wolf but they couldn't find it. So they, I think he went free.
1: Mm. It's reminds me a bit of the beast of uh, Javadan. I don't know if I pronounced that right as well. They didn't actually find a person. They, they found a wolf in the end, but it didn't really explain what happened there. It's a really good case. So if anybody wants to, I'm not going to go into it because we're that. running out
0: of time. Oh my God. I know. I've completely taken up one more thing. I'm, then I'm finishing and then I, I promise I'm finishing. Um, there's also a condition called hypertrichosis, which is characterised by abnormal hair growth over the person's body. And there was quite a lot of people who were thought to be werewolves because of this condition, and a lot of them, very sadly, ended up exhibited in circuses it, that didn't have any other symptoms. It was just unusual body hair growth. So I'm, re- I mean, Bill, if you're listening, it sounds like you've had a horrible time, my love, and I'm, I'm really hope that life has been a bit kinder to you since, and that nothing has happened. And it's an amazing story. Mm. wow I'm gonna sit back now sorry I, I, that <laughs> was long wasn't it it just opened up so many interesting things the werewolves before I didn't realize there was that much to look into it is uh, this this these topics open up some interesting rabbit holes I'll now hand over to you Elsa I'm so sorry that is fine <laughs> it was really interesting it was really
1: interesting I mean, bear in mind we had a 13 minute gap in recording because we were we did so it wasn't yep. as long. over to you so I've named this one a tale of two demon acts after my complete failure at trying to get to the bottom of the Good Shepherd exorcism, I hit the books again to try and understand the context and the history of exorcisms. Whilst I couldn't find a good explanation still of what happened at the Hostel of the Good Shepherd, I found two really interesting medieval cases of possession and learnt that we're veering into the same territory we were last time with phantom monks. Ooh! So my new favourite historian, Dr. Francis Young, in his book, A History of Exorcisms in the Catholic Church, states... Christian demonology transformed the gods of the ancient world into beings of evil and required the systematic renunciation as a prerequisite to baptism. Believers who lapsed back into paganism were portrayed as falling under the dominion of these demons and were often possessed by them. Oh. He also says when it came to exorcisms the Catholic uh, the Catholic priests who were wary of pagan beliefs about sprites residing in water would cleanse the water before baptism with a hal song which is an early English word for exorcism. It was Borrowed from the Anglo-Saxons and it could also mean a diviner. And it comes, source of the word comes from how meaning omen. Oh. Young says this alludes to the possibilities that by borrowing from the vocabulary of magic, the Anglo-Saxon church accidentally or deliberately assimilated exorcisms as a rite of their own. Mm. And then in another I, love j store i spend so much time on there um in another uh, journal i was looking at written by richard Rayswell and peter Dendel in their essay demonic possession in anglo-saxon early modern england they also agree that exorcism has its roots in paganistic belief and that the rights of exorcism in the early catholic church lay somewhere between the same field of study that the monks were doing with the grimoires oh and magic but in england little li, i can't say this word liturgical <laughs> liturgical liturgical exorcisms weren't really the de facto approach for expelling demons for a long while it was all common for demon acts i love that they call them demon acts because it sounds like they're pokemon demon acts <laughs> It was more common for demon acts to visit the shrines of saints, as we will see with the possession of Jane Wentworth in 1516. Ooh. Jane was a 12 year old from Gosfield in Essex and recently been possessed. Um, Thomas More wrote about her in his book, The Supplication of Souls, and describes her as vexed and tormented by ghostly enemy, the devil. Ooh. Anne suffered from seizures in which she would spasm and blaspheme, but she was also said to utter prophecy. Jane, sometimes known as Anne, was the daughter of Sir Roger Wentworth, a knight of the land who had been twice made MP for Ipswich, despite the fact he lived in Essex. The location of their home is given is either Thaxted or Gosfield on different sources, but I think the family seat was actually in Gosfield looking at the genealogy records, and they possibly had another house in Thaxted. It was Jane, it was 12-year-old Jane herself who asked to be taken to the shrine of Our Lady of Grace in Ipswich. Moore described the condition of Jane on her arrival lay before the image of our blessed lady grievously tormented and in face even look and countenance so grievously changed it was a terrible sight to behold wow as Jane was taken before the shrine her exorcism began she started to deliver visionary sermons calling on others including members of her own family to be reconciled to God the proceedings were witnessed by local nobles including Lord Curzon uh, John Reeve, and the abbot of Bury St Edmunds and some its leading churchman, Jane harangued the clergy, declaring, you shall see what ye, what good ye all do me with your arguments, for I shall be by and by in the same case that I was the day I was holden by our blessed lady. There's going to be a lot of old English in this, and some of it's going to get really difficult to say. <laughs> In other words, what Jane was saying is you bunch of poses didn't do me a bit of good. Only being at the shrine helped me at all. At this point, liturgical, exorcisms, again, not very common and exorcisms at shrines were what most people were familiar with. And Jane... Also seems to be saying that Lord Curzon even reported the matter to the king, a young Henry VIII, early in his reign. He had already had many failed attempts to produce a male heir with his first wife, Catherine, and he was conducting numerous affairs. I can't help but think this may have been a veiled warning to him about the power of the Catholic Church amongst his own people. Mm. Jane apparently Wonder. went on to become a nun after her, her ordeal to give thanks to the Virgin Mary. However, that of course would not last long since a couple of decades later, the Reformation would take place and she would likely have found herself back at her family's estate. So skeptics hat. Yep. This comes from a number of journals. It comes from a number of sources, some mm-hmm. firsthand like Thomas More. But was this politics? Mm. did a 12-year-old Jane persuade Henry to stay with Catherine just a few more years? Makes you wonder, doesn't it? It does. But that brings me on to a very different case. Well, different in some ways, very similar in others. Just over 100 years later, and on the other end of the spectrum from Jane Wentworth is a teenager called Catherine Malpass of West Ham, which was then Part of Essex. Oh, okay. The girl was similarly thought to be demonically afflicted. According to the testimony of testimony of her grandparents given in the Star Chamber, it all began on Candlemas Eve, 1621. She suffered from bouts of hideous screaming that left her lame, and over several months, Catherine often succumbed to terrible fits that horrified anyone who saw her. According to her mother, also named Catherine, by the way, just to make things just to make extra it. complicated. Yeah. And this is going to be in some, old, I'm going to try and read it in modern English, but Go bear with me. Even you. Catherine would draw her hands together and at other times would hold in her head and make her head shake as though it was troubled with the palsy and divers times don't know what that is. When the fits took her, she would foam at the mouth and shriek fearfully. At other times, she would draw in her belly flat to her back and would draw down her shoulders and bones. And sometimes she would, when a fit did take her, her legs would turn backwards and be very stiff. At other times, she would be stretched out and be so that her whole body would bend without breaking. Other times, she would allegedly have a lump rising up in her stomach described as about (laughs) this is actually a lovely way her stomach to the bigness of a half penny loaf wow she's got eds lesser yeah it does (laughs) it does sound a little like eds yeah and she would beat her head against the wainscot and shrug up her shoulders and would make her bones crack and the times her mouth would draw to one side now somebody else said that the lump in her stomach would also sometimes move across her stomach and up to her chest and arms. So soon people began to pay attention to Catherine to see for themselves the spectacle and offer their sympathies. She would apparently throw religious artefacts at people, mostly the people who brought them in, which were the clergy. And she'd throw the Bible at anyone who came to offer her exorcism. (laughs) However... Not all was as it seems. Catherine's symptoms were textbook for demon acts at that time. It was really famous. It was even in a play, they really went into the description of how a demon act should be identified, but they were a little too textbook for some people. Mm. And suspicion soon fell on her and her family. Several people accused of helping Catherine fake her possession were her grandparents and her mother, but they'd believe they had somebody else training her as well. It was her grandmother, but also her grandmother specifically had taught her certain tricks and trappings of feigning uh, possession. According to Catherine's testimony, she and her grandparents orchestrated the whole affair. Her grandmother confessed that she did it in order to pay for the keep of Catherine, who was living with them, whilst Catherine's mother resided in London with her husband, who was seemingly not Catherine's father. Hmm. Though this is my conjecture, as he never materializes in the court records. He's never called on... He just doesn't seem to have anything to do with the case. Her grandfather apparently was unaware at first and then learning that she was faking the fits became furious with her until he noticed certain persons of quality paying visits to Catherine and paying her money mm. out of pity. And the case drew such attention that even though little money was actually accumulated by the fraud due to the connotations it had for the power of the church and the monarchy, since possession had been used at this time as a source of propaganda for non-conformist churches to draw power away from the Church of England, King James I even examined Catherine and her grandmother himself. Really? hmm Oh, it's- Wow. Yeah, all these records of this of from the star court are really interesting. But it was apparently to him that they both were like, we confess, we confess. It was all fake. It was actually one of four cases of fake uh, demonic possession that he took an interest in. All of these cases, there was a strong, if not outright connotation that possession had been caused by people practicing witchcraft, a subject in which James I had really wrote the book on some false demon acts even went as far as naming the accused witches that they said had put this demon presence upon them. However, after these four cases of which Catherine Malpass seems to have been the final one, it seems that James took more of a sceptical view on the existence of witchcraft, which deviated greatly from his earlier work writing the demonology. Hmm. In these two cases, we've got Two young girls, inexplicably drawn into the political landscape of their times. One from a wealthy background and one from a likely extremely impoverished background, sharing startlingly similar stories with incredibly different outcomes. One is now known as the Maid of Ipswich and the other is known as a Fraud. I do wonder how they would feel knowing that we were talking about them several hundred years later. But maybe this is girl power before Jerry Hallowell ever thought of putting mm. a union flag on her dress. In fact, on this episode on the title card, I am going to finally light up the white stiletto.
0: I think so. Yeah. And do you know what? When I was going through like my research, that that King James the demonology, there was one section and it it listed symptoms. And if it was if it was a man who was exhibiting these symptoms. They were to be treated as if they had a mental illness. They were to be um, looked after, kind. You know, it was treated as a medical issue even then. I, I
1: I have one little note after after this about it's about a man who was possessed. But I I think I should explain actually because we never quite explain why the white stiletto is on our oh, Iridesics yeah. logo. <laughs> so in Sid Moore's book, Strange Magic, she mm. talks about how. Essex girls are like the inheritors of the stigma about witchcraft in Essex. Mm-hmm. And obviously the white stiletto being the symbol of Essex girls everywhere for so many decades. Yeah, We felt pertinent to include it on our logo, um, but we hadn't lit let let it up so far. But this is the story which, which is going to see it lit up.
0: I think so. I mean, um, again, those, those symptoms, if it was a woman, then she was possessed. Same symptoms. Mm. one last note
1: as I was researching these two cases of fake demon acts I came across another one He wasn't Essex but it oh god it's um you may have to cut this out it's so it just amused me so much (laughs) so this man William Perry almost got away with it he actually almost convinced the bishop of Lichfield that he was possessed and he did this by urinating black pee Oh, but on closer inspection, <laughs> it's so bad. Yeah. on closer inspection, the man had the man had hidden a piece of cloth soaked in black ink under his foreskin. Oh, so it seems that like faking position possession in this period really was the kind of thing you had to throw yourself completely into. Wow, that is dedication to your. I know. <laughs> Don't try this at home. No, please, <laughs> please never do that. Interesting. <laughs> so- so we've gone from the medieval period where possibly exorcism started as a pagan ritual and a pagan belief, and it's now firmly within the church's grasp. Oh, but, oh the poor, poor Jane. Well, but Catherine is the one who got accused oh, of. Catherine, them. yeah. I mean, but neither of them had particularly happy endings. Jane would have been maybe just
0: early 30s when she was ousted out of the nunnery. Just used yeah. I'm on 6% on my laptop and even Uh-oh. though it's plugged in, it's still going down because yeah. you have a new laptop. I know. Have you got another story or are you? I do.
1: And I'm, re- I'm going to have to whiz through it. Okay. I've got one more as well, but it's short. We're going to have
0: to do this as a two-parter. Yeah, it is.
1: It's going to have to be a two-parter.
0: As predicted, yes, this is a two-parter. So you've got another hour of me and Elsa waffling on about exorcisms to come. We hope you've enjoyed part one. Part two, hmm, I'd say it does get a little bit scarier. So watch out. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on or even just a rating. It all helps in the end. If you've got any more stories or any more information about the stories that we spoke about in part one, you can drop us an email at eerieessexpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you just search for Eerie Essex, you'll find us. Bye.